0: You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org/students. That's lls.org/students. you That's just a kid. slash students. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and/or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is part two of our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. And today's story begins on a summer day, way back in 1968. Catherine Cher was 26 years old on the summer day when a guy in a cowboy hat drove up to the house where she was crashing in a beat-up Chevrolet and invited her to go swimming. She got in the car with him, and there were two girls in there already, a redhead who everyone called Squeaky and a gorgeous teenager who everyone called Weesh. The girls didn't say anything. It was clear the guy in the cowboy hat's mere presence precluded speech. They drove up to Pacific Palisades and stopped in front of a mansion made to look like a fancy log cabin. The cowboy turned to Catherine. He said, This is your dream, isn't it, girl? And then he looked her straight in the eyes and added, Start living it. It was only later, once they were on the grounds of the house, surrounded by peacocks and wild foliage and topless girls dancing to Magical Mystery Tour that the cowboy, now wearing a silk kimono unwrapped over his bare chest and a pair of silk lounging pants, introduced himself. Hello, I'm Charlie Manson. Charlie had given Catherine the impression that the house was his. In fact, while it was certainly Charlie's scene that permeated the Palisades log cabin the summer of 1968, the house belonged to Dennis Wilson, the drummer of the Beach Boys. Dennis Wilson's chance meeting of two Manson girls on Pacific Coast Highway would touch off a chain of events. Through Wilson, and through Wilson's kindness, generosity, and largesse, Charles Manson began mingling with various members of the L.A. music scene who intentionally, or out of a sheer sense of politeness, stoked Manson's rock star fantasies. Until they didn't. And not long after that, people started to die. Today we're going to talk about Charles Manson's arrival in Los Angeles in 1967, with designs on spreading his gospel through rock and roll. We're going to talk about Dennis Wilson's life and career leading up to this point, and we'll explain the role Wilson played in enabling Manson's delusions during this period. And we'll talk about how Wilson suffered once Manson's true capabilities became shockingly clear. Join us, won't you, as we move with the Manson family into Dennis Wilson's house. Like many American cities in the 1960s, Los Angeles was in the midst of social upheaval. But in pretty typical L.A. fashion, its version of upheaval was by turns legitimate and superficial. After World War II, while the white middle and upper classes saw their fortunes soar and invested their acquired capital into shiny new suburbs, the black population of the city, which had expanded during the war due to the need for contractors, was basically systematically shut out of jobs in booming industries like aerospace and entertainment and segregated into undesirable neighborhoods like Inglewood under the air path to LAX and Watts. It was in the latter neighborhood that the arrest of a black man for drunk driving in 1965 touched off one of the first major instances of racially motivated civil unrest of the 1960s. The Watts Riots came out of the black community's desire to have their circumstances seen and heard. Which they were, but their frustrations weren't understood. The increased visibility of black frustration made L.A.'s white people more afraid of what was perceived as the threat of black violence. Rich people were worried that black guys were going to corrupt their daughters, break into their mansions, and kill their wives— They weren't worried about guys who looked like Charlie Manson doing the same. Not incidentally, when it came to race, Manson was in league with the LAPD and the Nixon administration in his simultaneous belief that whites were inherently superior to blacks and that if given any sort of leeway, angry black men could easily destroy civilized society. Then there was what was going on in Hollywood. (coughs) If previous generations of rich and or famous Angelinos maybe managed to stay completely sheltered from the real world, much of the young generation of upcoming rock and movie stars fancied themselves street warrior revolutionaries. But the stakes of the causes they latched onto were sometimes comically low. When the LAPD decided to crack down on underage drinking and rampant public drug use on the Sunset Strip by enforcing a curfew and closing a club called Pandora's Box on Sunset and Crescent Heights right at the mouth of Laurel Canyon, about 300 white, mostly middle-class kids took to the street to protest the curtailing of their good time. This mob blocked traffic and rocked a city bus, forcing its driver and passengers to evacuate. Protesters included Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda, who was seen being taken away from the scene in handcuffs. The protests didn't have much of an impact, except on Stephen Stills of the band Buffalo Springfield, who went back to his Tabanga Canyon house after the so-called Sunset Strip riot and wrote a song in 15 minutes, inspired by the generational conflict in the streets between the kids and the cops. debuted in December 1966, and became a huge hit into 1967, an anthem of the times that could easily be applied to protests with more substantive political significance, such as those against the Vietnam War. For what it's worth, helped spread the notion nationally that the L.A. rock scene was a fertile place for dispatches from the generational revolution. In a time when Hollywood had lost its allure for a lot of young people— This became a siren call for kids who simultaneously felt disenfranchised and also had that desire for greatness that Dale Carnegie talked about and that Manson believed in. Los Angeles had always been a magnet for pilgrims with stars and dollar signs in their eyes. In the late 1960s, those pilgrims more often than not had a guitar in their hand and something to say. The blatant fame-chasing of previous generations was now passé, if you were going to use the celebrity industrial complex to get people to hear your music, it was supposed to be because you thought your music could change the world. This is what Charlie Manson told his family was the purpose for their journey from San Francisco to LA. Charlie had a message, and the most effective way to spread that message around the world would be to allow a record company to release his songs. This righteous desire to effect change was a convenient, cool cover-up for Manson's actual ambitions. Charlie Manson wasn't a kid in 1967 when he arrived in L.A. He was 34, and thanks to his extensive criminal record, he had never held a real job, had a real long-term relationship, or a personal stake in anything lasting of any kind other than prison life. Because he had little to lose, he could only see what he stood to gain. In some sense, he was the same as any naive, starry-eyed kid pulled west by the magnet of promise. He thought that he was uniquely talented, and that as soon as he got in the right room with the right person who could give him a chance, everything from there on out would be easy. He thought fame and fortune were his destiny, and he seized every opportunity to meet that destiny expediently. Which is all to say that Charlie took his audition for Gary Stromberg at Universal Music, set up by Manson's old prison buddy Phil Kaufman, very seriously. He bathed for it, and he warned Mary, Lynn, Pat, and Susan, who are accompanying him to Stromberg's office, to be on their best behavior, which meant that they were to sit still and rapt and not do or say anything unless Charlie gave them a sign. This had some kind of an effect. Stromberg looked at Charlie, who showed up barefoot, and saw the control he exerted over these four girls. And Stromberg was impressed. Stromberg set up a studio session so that Charlie could record a demo. But once Charlie got into the studio, his confidence fell apart. He had no idea how to use a microphone, and he didn't like the studio engineers telling him what to do. The whole three-hour session was basically a wash. Stromberg told Charlie to keep working on his songs, and maybe they could try another session sometime in the vague future. In other words, don't call us, we'll call you. But Charlie took it literally. And in a way, Stromberg continued to lead Manson on. The record exec had no intention of letting Charlie make a record, but he was still compelled by Charlie's guru act. Universal had been thinking of making a movie about the return of Christ in the modern-day counterculture scene, and Stromberg justified hanging out with Manson as research. Stromberg went with Charlie and his followers to the beach, where Manson preached about woman's inherent inferiority to man and the importance of renouncing possessions in order to be open to spiritual clarity. A passerby who stopped to listen took note of the family's school bus, which they had turned into a kind of deluxe mobile apartment, complete with a dining table and portable record player. If possessions are so bad, the guy asked Manson, why don't you give up your fancy bus? Charlie threw the guy the keys to the bus and said, Take it! So the guy got in the bus and drove it away. He returned it a few hours later, but this was enough for Stromberg to believe that Charlie was for real. But the Jesus movie never went anywhere, and Stromberg wasn't interested enough in Charlie's music to continue to pursue him. If Charlie felt like he was failing, or even just floundering, he knew better than to let it on to the girls. He told them that if Stromberg wasn't enlightened enough to get Charlie's message and know that the only righteous thing to do was to spread it, then that was Stromberg's problem. ¶¶ Instead of signing with Universal, Manson brought his family to Topanga Canyon, now famous as the home of the Kardashians, but then an enclave of communes and weird crumbling estates nestled into the Labyrinthian Hills, separating the far west San Fernando Valley from Malibu. The Manson clan first settled in an infamous Topanga Canyon house, known as Spiral Staircase, a wreck which would be demolished in 1968, but in late 1967 was still functioning as a kind of all-purpose community center for various cults and gurus, where bored and searching rich and famous people would go to get high, get enlightened, and get laid. Jim Morrison, members of the band The Mamas and the Papas, and Love, actor Peter Sellers, and celebrity hairdresser Jay Sebring were all rumored to hang out there. Manson would later claim the place was rife with sex fetishists and Satan worshippers, both of which weren't exactly his scene, although as usual he was happy to borrow elements from other people's bags to add to his own. Eventually, like within a matter of months, group sex would become a major part of the Manson family's home life, with Manson himself acting as producer and director of acid-fueled pansexual orgies. But in the fall of 1967, Nansen felt the vibe at Spiral Staircase was wrong. He also worried about losing his girls to one of the competing gurus floating around the property. So after about two months, he piled his family back in the bus for a journey through the Mojave Desert. It was now early winter, and the Beatles had just released the soundtrack album to their movie, Magical Mystery Tour. In between sermons, Charlie would play the record for his disciples, stressing the connections between himself and his musical heroes, reminding the girls that they were on a magical mystery tour, too. It didn't always feel so magical. Charlie would take out his frustrations on Mary, often leaving her with a black eye. Mary's bruises were a reminder to the other girls what would happen if they made Charlie angry. By the end of 1967, Manson had a new follower, a 14-year-old girl named Diane Lake, who had been living with her parents on Hog Farm, a commune run by Wavy Gravy, an activist also known as the official clown of the Grateful Dead. Manson had taken an interest in Diane on a visit to Hog Farm, and when she asked her parents if they would give her permission to leave their scene and join Manson's, her parents said sure. Charlie would continue to have sex with all of his women, but for the next year, Diane Lake would be his favorite. Manson's growing family continued to bounce around the Topanga Canyon area, often relying on the kindness of strangers-turned-temporary benefactors, sometimes staying at Spiral Staircase, and sometimes with Gary Hinman, a music teacher who was deep into Buddhism and maybe deeper into home-brewing mescaline. Taking a cue from San Francisco's diggers, Manson sent his girls out to scavenge for food, which usually meant dumpster diving, but sometimes meant flirting or even having sex with supermarket workers in exchange for milk or candy. Otherwise, the family lived mostly on barter, usually involving old cars, which the guys in the group would fix up and trade for whatever else they needed, namely drugs, which Charlie needed a lot of for his rituals. Every night, after a dinner prepared and served by the women to the men, who were supposed to eat until they were full and then pass their scraps on to the girls, Charlie would dose all of his followers with LSD. As the drugs were kicking in, Charlie would preach, cycling through his greatest hits, reminding his children that possessions were bad, there is no such thing as death, etc. He'd play his guitar, encouraging the girls to sing along with Charlie's own songs, And when he ran out of those, the newest hits by the Beatles. And when there were enough men around, Charlie would coach the group through group sex, telling which members what to do to whom. Sometime around April 1st, the first of several Manson babies were born, this one to Charlie's punching bag, Mary. By this time, the Manson family was nearing two dozen members. Just like the hate before it, Tabanga Canyon was starting to flood with young refugees who, having renounced traditional society, were looking for something new to be a part of. Charlie happily accepted pretty much any man who wanted to join his family, but women he put through a series of tests, isolating himself with them for days on end, forcing them to reveal all kinds of things about their lives and backgrounds, and breaking down their defenses, sexually. The interrogations were designed to reveal to Charlie which buttons to press so that he could control the young lady going forward. The sex stuff was so that Charlie could gauge his new followers' willingness to submit to him. Any girl who wouldn't go down on Charlie on request had no place in the family. After all, if they wouldn't do it with him, they were probably going to be uptight about the nightly orgies. And thus, that girl would be turned away unless she had access to money. That's why Manson accorded rare, part-time status to Dee Dee Shaw, the teenage daughter of Angela Lansbury, who Manson would pick up from her private high school and who would let the family members go shopping with her mommy's credit card. Eventually, the future Jessica Fletcher cancelled her daughter's credit cards, and Manson subsequently cut Dee Dee off too. Charlie would soon move on to the largesse of other celebrities. In fact, he'd court it, sending his prettiest and most sexually aggressive girls to the Sunset Strip or to the beach, looking for rock stars and movie stars who could maybe either help Charlie get a record deal or at least make a cash donation to the family itself. And eventually, Pat Krenwinkel and a new girl named Ella Jo reeled in a big fish. In early 1968, Dennis Wilson was 23. He had always been the only real beach boy in The Beach Boys, the only member of the band who physically fit the Malibu Ken doll stereotype, the only one who surfed and went to beach parties and successfully chased girls, the only one for whom the lyrics of songs like Fun 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 and Surfing USA were autobiographical, even though Dennis was just the drummer and usually contributed minimally to the song creation process. He was the middle Wilson brother, between Brian and Carl, and all of them had grown up in the unglamorous L.A. suburb of Hawthorne. Their dad, Murray, was at best overbearing and at worst, abusive. Dennis started surfing at age 13 to get out of the house and escape his dad's regular beatings. The Beach Boys had been the biggest thing in the L.A. music scene, and one of the most successful pop acts in the U.S. on the whole for more than five years, from 1961 through the end of 1966. But by the time they backed out of the Monterey Pop Festival in June 1967, much had changed. The culture was moving so fast that, despite the fact that they'd had a major hit with Good Vibrations in the fall of 1966, nine months later they were basically an oldies attraction, if they were any kind of attraction at all. The spring of 1967, the band went on tour with Dennis and Mike Love's pet spiritual advisor, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, as their opening act, meaning he'd essentially pitched the audience on transcendental meditation for an hour before the Beach Boys came out on stage. This was about as good an idea as it sounded. Word of mouth on the tour was toxic from the first show on, and the rest of the shows didn't sell. The tour had to be canceled halfway through, costing the band half a million dollars. This was a major financial blow given that Pet Sounds, the album on which Brian Wilson had labored to invent a new, multi layered, album only, impossible to reproduce live psychedelic sound, had failed to sell in the US, and a year later was completely overshadowed by the Beatles as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band a defeat which only worsened Brian Wilson's anxiety and depression and caused him to withdraw for long periods of time. In early 1968, the Beach Boys released an album called Friends, which did embarrassingly bad business for a band of the Beach Boys' stature. It contained two songs co-written by Dennis, who wasn't as ambitious as his brother Brian. Instead of taking the defeat of the record personally, Dennis basically shrugged and went back to what he did best— Nothing. He was fairly recently divorced from his first wife and living in an unusual bachelor pad, a log cabin that had been built to serve as a hunting lodge for cowboy star Will Rogers. It was on West Sunset Boulevard, a long way away from the Sunset Strip, all the way out where the streets spilled onto the Malibu shore. The house became the center of a constant party, kept going by an equally infinite stream of house guests, often virtual strangers who Dennis would invite into his world moments after meeting them. Dennis was pathologically generous. If you were his friend, and if you had ever met him, you were his friend, then what was his was yours, and that meant his food, his drugs, and his house. In the late spring of 1968... Dennis Wilson picked up two Manson girls, Pat Krenwinkel and Ella Jo, who were hitchhiking on the Pacific Coast Highway. Dennis was broad-shouldered, good-looking, and driving an expensive-looking ride, so when he asked the girls if they wanted to come over to his place for some milk and cookies, the girls were game. Dennis really did serve the girls milk and cookies, although he probably also had sex with at least one of them that afternoon, too. The Manson girls had no idea Dennis Wilson was a beach boy. If they had ever been impressed by the Beach Boys, they wouldn't have been in 1968 when the band had lost so much cool cred. And anyway, Manson himself was their only idea of a rock god. But when Pat and Ella Joe returned to the family that evening, they told Charlie about their adventure, and he demanded that the girls take him to Dennis Wilson's house. Charlie Manson knew exactly who Dennis Wilson was, and as soon as he heard the name, visions of recording contracts started dancing in his head. When Dennis Wilson got back to his house late that night after a recording session, the lights were on and a party was in progress, which was not all that unusual. But he was surprised when the back door opened and a man he had never seen before came out, a bearded man of about five foot two who greeted Dennis like an old friend. Are you going to hurt me? Dennis asked Charles Manson. Charlie responded, Do I look like I'm going to hurt you? As if to preempt Dennis's answer, Charlie then dropped to his knees and kissed Dennis Wilson's feet. This apparently allayed Dennis's fears, and he went inside his house with Charlie to find the place full of Manson women dancing topless. The party went on for days. Between enjoying himself with various Manson girls, Dennis spent hours talking to Manson himself. Well, really, listening to Manson talk about how there was no such thing as right or wrong, good or bad, alive or dead. This was a profound line of thinking for Dennis, who was still deeply scarred by the abuse he suffered at the hands of his father. Manson told him that the beatings weren't his fault. Manson told him that parents fuck their children up in order to build their own egos. Dennis was like, Yeah, that sounds right. And soon, Dennis had latched onto Charles Manson the same way he had previously gone all in on the Maharishi, which was great for Manson because the Maharishi had shared a concert stage with the Beach Boys. And Dennis Wilson did come through with music industry connections. He regularly invited rock star friends over to his house to hear Charlie's songs, the most notable and most interested of which was Neil Young, who apparently did try to get Warner Brothers to sign Charlie, although they declined. Dennis also introduced Charlie to one of his best friends, Greg Jacobson, who was working as a talent scout for Columbia Records. Jacobson wasn't sure about Charlie's music, But he liked the vibe of his scene, and even though Jacobson was engaged to the daughter of Abbott and Costello's Lou Costello, he also took an instant liking to Ruth Ann Morehouse, one of Charlie's teenage disciples. Acting as pimp to Greg Jacobson and pimp-slash-spiritual-guru to Dennis Wilson, Manson was putting Dale Carnegie's key ethos into action. Charlie was using the importance other people put on sex. To propel his own dreams of greatness. And those dreams now seemed closer to reality than they ever had before. Dennis Wilson was convinced that Manson was a genius. He brought his new friend to Brother Records, a company which the Beach Boys had formed specifically so that they could put out records by their talented friends. Wilson had so much faith in Manson that he started telling interviewers all about his new friend, who he called The Wizard, and who he suggested would be the next artist assigned to Brother Records. But the other guys at Brother weren't impressed by Manson. In fact, they had a hard time getting past the fact that he looked and smelled like the transient that he was. Behind his back, they started calling Manson Pigpen— And the longer Charlie sat around and jammed with anyone who knew anything about music, the more it became apparent that Manson could only play a couple of chords. At some point, the Beach Boys' management ran a background check on Charlie and solemnly informed Dennis that his new friend had a serious criminal record. To Dennis, this was great news. It meant Charlie wasn't lying or exaggerating about his dark past, the way bad boy phonies in LA were known to do. And in a world in which Peter Fonda could get dragged away from a protest in support of a nightclub in handcuffs, obviously anyone who was really shaking up the social order would run afoul of the law every now and then. Charlie had a few other places he could crash around town, But Dennis Wilson's house had become the family's home base. Charlie may have acted like he owned the place sometimes, like that day he first met Catherine Cher, who would soon become a full-fledged family member under the moniker Gypsy. But Dennis was around most of the time, too, fooling around with the girls, and not just sexually. He'd pile a bunch in his Rolls Royce and go for joyrides around town, or drive them to go on their supermarket dumpster dives in his cherry red Ferrari. They'd gather around his piano and sing along as he worked out his songs. The Manson girls treated Dennis Wilson like, well, like one of the family. And Wilson thought highly enough of Manson that he offhandedly suggested that they collaborate on a couple of songs. At least, that's what Manson thought was happening. He submitted two sets of lyrics to Wilson, one for a song he wanted to call Garbage Dump, about how his family literally ate the things that other people threw away. There's a market basket and an A.M.P. I don't care if the box boys are standing me. I don't even care who wins the war. I'll be in the cans behind my favorite store. Garbage dump. Oh God. And another called cease to exist. Submission is a gift. God, give it to your brother Love and understanding Is for one another I'm your king, I'm your kind I'm your brother I never had a lesson I ever learned But I know we all Get our turn and I Here's a sidebar. The only band that Charlie really loved and encouraged his family to listen to, aside from the Beatles, was the British psych rock band, The Moody Blues. This part of Cease to Exist feels like, shall we say, an echo of Nights in White Satin, The Moody Blues' first big hit single in the U.S., which came out in November 1967 at least a few months before Manson wrote Cease to Exist. Charlie would later claim that Cease to Exist... With lines like, submission is a gift, go on, give it to your brother, was his message to the Beach Boys. As in, like, surrender your egos, and you'll work better together as a band. But the other lines in the song are directed to a pretty girl, making the submission in question seem sexual. In any case, Manson gave the lyrics to Wilson and told him he could do whatever he wanted musically, as long as he didn't change the words. In exchange for this creative gift, Manson and his women took plenty from Wilson. He paid for them to go to doctors and dentists, and for their prescriptions during a family-wide epidemic of VD. If a member of the family saw something they liked in Dennis's house, Dennis said, It's yours. Which is how Charlie ended up in possession of a couple of Wilson's gold records. But as the summer wore on, the family started to wear out its welcome. For one thing, Charlie wouldn't shut up about a record deal. Dennis had tried to get him signed to Brother, he had even set up a recording session. But as with the demo tryout for Universal, when Charlie was actually given a chance to put his stuff on tape, he choked and became defensive about anyone telling him what to do, even if all they were telling him was how to use studio recording equipment which he had never used before. The session had ended when Charlie pulled out a knife and threatened the engineer. This was something that was starting to happen a lot. Anytime Dennis brought a girl home, Charlie would try to initiate her into the family. And the initiation, of course, was sex with Charlie. When one of Dennis's girlfriends wouldn't go to bed with Charlie, he pulled out a knife and said, You know, I could cut you up in little pieces. But when she dared him to do it, he demurred. Dennis had opened his house to Manson and his women, because the sex was free, easy and plentiful, and Manson himself was legitimately interesting, at least as far as Farak gurus go. But then, they wouldn't leave, and the Manson girls kept giving Dennis gonorrhea. And they were expensive. Dennis went away for a few days, and the family managed to charge $800 on his tab at the local dairy. When Dennis returned, he was pissed but he still kind of wanted to record one of Charlie's songs, Cease to Exist. So instead of kicking the family out of his house, Dennis packed a bag and quietly rented a new, smaller place for himself and let the log cabin's landlord evict Charlie and his girls. This way, Dennis could still take advantage of Charlie's harem and maybe even make music with the guy, but also get rid of him. Once their stay at Wilson's house came to an end, Charlie and his family moved full-time onto Spawn Ranch, an old Western movie set north of the San Fernando Valley, which we'll talk about next week. Dennis continued to come hang out with the family occasionally, and one day, he came bearing good news. The Beach Boys had agreed to record Cease to Exist for their next album. Charlie would have preferred a contract to record the song himself, but this wasn't nothing. It became nothing. When the Beach Boys finally recorded the song, it was under the title Never Learn Not to Love, with lyrics altered slightly by Dennis. He changed the word brother to lover, thus erasing any ambiguity about the song's sexual connotations, and Dennis credited himself as the song's sole composer. Now, maybe this was because the rest of the band, particularly creative genius Brian Wilson, openly hated Charles Manson. Or maybe it was because Dennis was finally, rightfully, angry over how much the family had taken advantage of him and continued to do so even after they moved out of Dennis's house one of the family members totaled Dennis's Ferrari the truth was Dennis Wilson was a rock star and for all of his generosity he was used to getting what he wanted even if it made someone else feel cheated but charlie still considered it a betrayal albeit a betrayal which he could point to as evidence when he was preaching about the corrupting nature of materialism and the necessity of wealth redistribution. Especially after the single bombed, stalling out at number 61 on the billboard charts. In the weeks leading up to the murders, Charlie was desperate for money, and he started trying to track down Dennis in the hopes of borrowing some. A note was left at a house Dennis was known to stay at, reading, You can't get away from me. On another occasion, Dennis woke up and found that something else had been left. A single bullet. By the time he found out about Manson's connection to the Tate murders, Wilson and Manson had completely lost touch. In part because one of the music scene connections Wilson had passed along to Manson had also ended badly, but we'll get to that in a future episode. Still, Dennis Wilson was devastated to learn that this guy who he had welcomed into his home and his life, who Dennis had lent his own credibility to in the local music scene, and who Dennis had, at one point, really liked and believed in, had been responsible for such horrible things. Not to mention, Dennis had sincerely bought into what Manson preached. He would refuse to talk about Manson publicly, and privately, he admitted that he was afraid that Manson would find a way to kill him, even after Charlie and most of the murderous family members were behind bars. Over the next decade and a half, Dennis Wilson's drug use and alcohol addiction spiraled out of control, and some people attributed his inability to stay sober to his inability to shake his association with the criminal of the century. There were triumphs. In 1971, Wilson co-starred in Monty Hellman's film Tulane Blacktop, which would become a cult classic, but didn't lead to future acting work, maybe because Dennis didn't pursue it, He was frustrated by the lack of power he had as an actor in the filmmaking process. Even the Beach Boys gave him more say over what he was doing, and that was saying something. He also had a hard time with boredom in general. He didn't know what to do with himself when he had nothing to do, and knowing how to occupy oneself when there's nothing to do is an important part of being a movie actor. On the set of Tulane Blacktop, Dennis had the piano from a local cocktail bar moved into his trailer, and he started using his downtime to write songs. In 1977, Wilson released a stunning solo album called Pacific Ocean Blue, a beautiful piano-driven record which makes the most of Dennis's declining voice, which was beginning to show the wear and tear of years of smoking and drinking, but also... Showcased Dennis's personality like never before. Farewell, my friend, my beautiful friend. Farewell. You take the high road, and I'll take the low road, and. We'll The world, my friend The album was full of songs about his sometime wife, Karen Lamb, who he would marry and divorce and marry again, but their mutual substance abuse problems would make it impossible for them to make it work. Pacific Ocean Blue had its fans, but it wasn't a hit. And when a devotee asked Wilson if he'd release another solo album... Tears welled in his eyes as he said, I can't, man. It hurt too much. Dennis had a stormy relationship with Christine McVie while Fleetwood Mac were making Tusk, and he picked up another couple of wives, the last of which was Sean Love, the teenage daughter of Mike Love, fellow Beach Boy and Dennis's cousin. By 1983, Dennis had been banned from Beach Boys' concerts, and he was forced to sell his beloved boat to pay the bills. He was reduced to stealing his daily half-gallon bottle of vodka from Venice Beach liquor stores. Just before Christmas, he checked into rehab for alcoholism and cocaine addiction. By December 26th, he had checked himself out. On December 28th, Dennis began drinking vodka at 9 a.m., and spent much of the afternoon diving into the marina where he used to dock his boat. He had found a silver frame, which used to contain a photo of his ex-wife, Karen. According to witnesses, he kept diving into the water, hoping he'd find the photo. At some point, he stopped coming up for air. Around 5.30 p.m., his body was recovered. Dennis Wilson was dead at the age of 39. 25 years later, Pacific Ocean Blue was re-released along with tracks recorded for an unfinished album which Wilson was planning to call Bamboo. You can get it from iTunes and you should. It's really beautiful stuff. On the cover, Wilson is photographed bearded, looking pretty miserable, and actually Kind of a lot like Charles Manson. Next week, we'll follow the Manson family up to Spawn Ranch, the missing link between the Old West fantasies of the counterculture that infected movies like Easy Rider, and the horrible New West nightmare that Manson would bring into being. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. We had two special guests. Noah Segan played Dennis Wilson, and we're happy to have the return of Nate DeMeo from The Memory Palace as Charles Manson. You can find Nate's podcast at thememorypalace.us. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website. You must remember You can also follow us on Twitter at rememberthispod. And if you like the podcast, please tell anyone you can, any way you can. You can tweet about us, blog about us, write about us in any forum of your choosing. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and rate and review us there, or on any podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and/or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Let the wind carry your.